You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. And we have been going on a series through Luke, and uh, today we find ourselves in Luke 15. Now, there's one particular part of Luke 15 that you've heard eight bajillion times when you've been at church. It's a story called the prodigal son, and because you're so used to just hearing that story, you're always focused on, like, all these particular elements in the story, which is great. It's wonderful. But Jesus tells that parable as one of several parables illustrating the same exact theme. So I thought it'd be good to read all of Luke 15 to you today. Just like we did last time, we saw three banquet parables back to back. This time you're going to see three parables about uh, sinners back to back. And I, I want you to hear them read together so that you can maybe even hear the prodigal son in a different light, or maybe catch some of the themes that Jesus was especially focused on. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Pause right there. Recognize that the very start of the three parables you're about to hear have that context, okay? The tax collectors, who are known as robbers, and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is the part where Jesus pauses and he looks around and he can hear the grumbling and he knows that it's time to address what's going on. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? And go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Jesus mic drop number one, talking to these uh, Pharisees grumbling about a meeting with sinners. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost." Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Mic drop number two, Jesus versus the Pharisees. And then he pulls out his longest fiction, the one that he wants to try to illustrate in greater detail, really submerging them in his point and his story. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father. Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. 
Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to, his, said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and, and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a, a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this is your brother, who is dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. These are the parables of lost things, stories that Jesus is telling because he's being judged once again by the so-called righteous people, the Pharisees, who are scoffing at him for eating meals with sinners. Now, this got Jesus in a lot of trouble all the time because there were, there were rules for holy Jewish people that you weren't supposed to be sharing meals in certain places, that you weren't supposed to keep certain company, and that you were supposed to kind of keep your distance from these kinds of things. But may I suggest to you that that's not just rules that the Jews created. This is rules that people of religion create all the time. I know that because I learned these rules from the church. We have still continued to keep these kinds of things, where if somebody's dealing with something that is a moral conundrum to the Christian, you are to keep your distance from them. If they subscribe to any different kind of way of life, if they are stigmatized by A, B, C, or D, if they are sinning, if they are caught up in drug addiction, and so on and so forth, make sure that you don't go near, you don't want to be contaminated spiritually or have your mind turned to the kinds of things that they're into, and so on and so forth. 
And we have our passages that we try to quote and, and respect to these kinds of statements, but that's not the way Jesus did ministry at all. Jesus was not afraid of being contaminated, contaminated by the riffraff. He was not afraid of becoming morally impure or unrighteous, depending on the kind of company he kept. And people will often quote Paul as someone who teaches us not to do that, but Paul also was not worried about such things. He, he spent his life going into places where people already had these various identities connected to them that Paul would have been said, like, no, Paul, we don't go around people like that. In fact, even Paul is call, found calling Peter out when Peter acts that way. Peter at one point is having dinner with the Gentiles, and then he sees some Jews come along, and he knows that the Jews don't really like the fact that these Christians are eating with Gentiles, and so Peter gets up and leaves. And Paul calls him out. Peter, what are you doing? You know this new thing that we're doing with the church? There's no lines. There's no separation. Why are you practicing your racism still, Peter? you got to let that go. See, there's this, this way that God looks with skin on. And it looks like spending time with the unlikely people. I think of Deborah Hirsch, who um, grew up in a bit of a commune where there were all kinds of orgies going on and addiction going on and all various kinds of things that the church would be like, you stay completely away from people like that. Until one day, her drug dealer got saved and they ended up going to church. And the pastor, man, you would expect, especially back in this time, that the pastor would have none of it. But instead, he just met with them. He had Bible studies with them. He graciously came alongside them and and eventually, many, many of them became church leaders, like huge church leaders today. Uh, you'll find at conferences, because a pastor met them in the space that they were at, where churches often say you can't intermix, and just gracefully loved them, and carefully moved forward as the Spirit led them to, to greater depths of relationship and, and healing within the Spirit. Do you live like that? Or do you have boundaries that Jesus did not? Because we do this all the time with people. Like we set up these rules as to like what are safe social dynamics and what aren't because we don't want to be caught up in something that looks suspicious or strange. But Jesus trusted himself. Jesus was not afraid of finding himself in suspicious dynamics. In fact, he put up with the insults that people gave him when they were suspicious. I mean, at one point, he has a woman come in and wash his feet with her hair, and she's known around town as a sinner. Don't you think the Pharisees that were probably in that situation probably sexualized that at some point? Oh, we saw this woman come in, you know. It was, it was some pretty interesting stuff. We know that they called him out on other things. Well, he's eating a lot, so he must be a drunkard and a glutton, and he's doing that with sinners and tax collectors who are robbing us, so he's probably a robber too. I bet his ministry is, is built on, on thieving every one of their stuff. Ironically, that's what the Pharisees did, but they probably called him out on that. 
But Jesus looked at these kinds of people like, you just can't be pleased. (laughs) You know, God's wisdom came to John the Baptist and and told John the Baptist to fast and repent and, and all these things. And he did it. And you weren't pleased by John the Baptist. Many people hold him as a prophet, but you guys, the religious leaders, you don't. And then I came, and wisdom taught me a different way. To eat with sinners and tax collectors. To kind of go the full force, opposite direction of ministry. If John is fasting, then I am feasting. And you look at me, and you're like, well, he's the worst. I said, Jesus, like, it doesn't matter, like, which extreme of ministry we're on. Like, we just can't please certain kinds of people. And we have to figure out how we listen to the wisdom, which is Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit, and operate within the context that we're in. That's what this church has tried to do over the years, and we're still always kind of tweaking and learning Part of the wisdom that we try to practice is exactly the kind that Jesus did, where we just eat with people. We'll do that next week at our uh, Greenwood Street Food event, where a lot of people who still have yet to come to a church service will probably show up and eat with us, and we'll get to know them, and we'll sit at tables with them, and we'll know their names, and we'll love on them, and they'll tell us things that we will be surprised that they just told us. I can't tell you the amount of times as a pastor that I'll be in a conversation with someone and they'll just say a whole lot of stuff with a whole lot of colorful language. And they're like, anyways, what do you do? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I, oh. <laughs> Actually, in Jackson, that's usually not the response. They're just like, beep, yeah, you know, <laughs> whatever. But we find ourselves in those kinds of situations because we follow Jesus. Jesus found those kinds of situations to be holy unto God. Because you know what God loves to celebrate? When just one sinner comes to repentance. I tell you, I see that all the time. When I'm taking people through inner healing and counseling and therapy and deliverance, when we're doing those kinds of things, God is always so gentle with people. As they come and they confess their stuff, I'll, I'll hear stories where I'm like, this is, this is pretty hard. And yet Jesus meets them so graciously, so kindly, so lovingly. And you can sense this, this presence of the Holy Spirit who's like, I see your baggage. I see the weight of your confession just now, the things that you have owned up to doing. I see how it's been torturing you. Give it to me. Let me help. That's Jesus. What kind of conversations do you think he had while he was sitting at those dinner tables all that time? He's doing it all the time. You think he just like pointed out every little sin that people did at the table? Is that just the Jesus way? Or do you think he sat there and he loved on them and he heard their stories and they heard their plights? Do you think anyone ever cursed around Jesus? And Jesus looked at him and was like, whoa, hey, that's a no-no. Or do you think he just cared for them and that they got to experience God in flesh in that moment? 
Because you see, they're never going to experience God if God does not create a way to get there. There's an old statement, it's kind of an extreme statement, and I'm actually forgetting the exact words. Maybe you guys know it. If not by our hands, God won't. Does anybody know what I'm saying? (laughs) Dang it, it's a really good statement. You should hear it sometime. (laughs) Thank you. It's an extreme statement that's more or less like God wants to reach people, but if you don't get involved in it, it's never going to happen. And that's an extreme statement because we're like, well, God could do anything. But you know what? He's created a framework as to how the world works. And occasionally, he does violate that framework. There's people that I have worked with in inner healing where we're like, wow, look how God supernaturally showed up and did some amazing things for you. But usually the way in which God works is by your hands. Usually the way in which God reaches the outcast is through your efforts. You may not be Jesus, you may not be God incarnate, but the same Holy Spirit that brings about wisdom, the same Holy Spirit that motivates us for ministry, equips us for ministry, and sends us out to do ministry, is the same Holy Spirit that is inside of you. So in a sense... You're the closest thing to Jesus that people are going to experience. This is why hypocrisy puts such a bad taste in our mouth. Because we see the name of Jesus, but we get a weird experience. It feels off-brand. Like Aldi cereal. (laughs) Mm, Right. We'll debate about that later. Um... Jesus comes for the lost. And when we don't do that because our churches are too holy for that, we, we honestly, we just missed the point. The things that I've learned from the church over the years is mostly to stigmatize people, to keep them at arm's length, to buy into all of the different lies and stereotypes. People are homeless because they just won't get a job. That is a far more complicated situation than that. If you give a homeless person money, they will just spend it on drugs. That is not true. I remember I was walking down the street one day, and on the side of the street, there was a guy just kind of plastered on the side of the building, and I just sat down with him, and I was just like, hey, man, what is going on here? <laughs> He's like, I don't know, man. Just, uh, just Life is going bad, you know. Okay, well, I'm a pastor down the road. Is there anything that I can uh, do for you? Oh, you're a pastor? Yeah. Can I pray for you or anything? Mm. You know a part in the Bible where it says, you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Well, it's a pretty big book. You don't know what I'm talking about? Bro, I literally have no idea what you're saying at all. Yeah, well, yeah. Like this, this is a moment where you're not expecting to find Christ. This is a moment where you're not expecting to find a Christian. It's maybe a moment where you're expecting to find a cop, possibly escorting someone to jail until they are sober. That's the moment where Jesus shows up. 
When he shows up to the woman at the well who's been divorced five times, despite Jesus' own teachings that you shouldn't get divorced, Jesus doesn't, doesn't come and scold her. He just loves on her. We know that because she ends the conversation with, I got to go tell everybody who this guy was. Not usually my response when someone's like, you've been divorced five times. <gasps> I got to tell everybody about you. But that's the way that she responds, because she has come in contact with God in flesh, and she's been mesmerized by him. She, who maybe felt no value or acknowledgement from these previous spouses, finds acknowledgement in Jesus. She is a person. She exists. She is loved. And sometimes the secular world gets this better. There's a lot of coalitions I serve on. We talked about this at Reveal Jackson yesterday, but one of the coalitions I serve on um, was Drug Free Jackson. And one of the big things we talked about was stigma. Is that part of the reason that people don't help people who are dealing with drugs is because we stigmatize them so much that they become the enemy we don't learn how they get stuck in these situations. We don't learn how to get them out of these situations. They're just outcasts to us who have no personhood, no meaning to their life, just labels, drug addict. And so I worked with Drug Free Jackson to then work with other doctors to then go and help co-found Jackson Harm Reduction where we forget about the stigma and we try to get right into the midst of their lives. I know it's backwards program, sounds like it. We're willing to give them drug needles because we know they'll use dirty ones if we don't, and they'll kill themselves. But we build relationships with them while we're giving that to them. And then sometimes they actually come all the way to recovery. Does that not sound like the Jesus way? To get into the mess? Hopefully there's other ways to go about this too. This is just one method. But one of the things that happened as we grew that is in a, like one of my difficulties working with doctors was for them it was very much a medical issue. Let's just make sure they're healthy. <laughs> Whereas for me I was like, we can think a little bigger than that. Like we can promote recovery. We can really plug them in. So we grew up this business and then uh, None of us were like, we got to hold this super tight. So when another recovery center in Jackson was like, thanks for changing the rules so we can now do this, we would like to essentially absorb you guys and continue what you're doing. Like for me, I was like, this was the dream. They're the ones who are intentionally trying to lead people all the way to recovery. And now something that we started is embodied in this recovery program. That for me is Christ. They meet with people where they're at, they sit at the table with the drug addicts, they care for them, they come alongside them, they keep them healthy, they build their relationships, and they bring people to healing. How can Jesus heal if he's not allowed to get into the midst of it in the first place? There are a lot of prodigal sons there who only make it halfway through that story. They go and they abuse everything they've been given. They're broke. They're serving the pigs and they're thinking about eating the pig slop. But they never get to the point of having the humility to say, I got to go back home. I got to go ask dad if he'll take me back. 
and you're the one who can stand in the gap. How often the Christian's work is to go up to sinners who feel like God will not accept them and tell them Jesus loves you anyways. Are you ready to come home? How often is that the work I do in recovery and inner healing in this room? Here's the stuff I've done. Okay, let me bridge the gap for you. Jesus loves you anyways. Are you ready to come home? It's the most beautiful truth, and it's the one that we reject more than any other Christian truth. Because the church is still teaching people that they are the weight of their sins. The church is still seeing people with stigma, still seeing people as labels. And instead, we need to live like Jesus, who doesn't care if the rest of the world is going to think he is a drunkard or a glutton or a robber, that they think he's being immoral, that he's being risque. Because he's not. He trusts himself. Because the Spirit has empowered him to go into these moments. And instead of him being contaminated by the outcasts, the outcasts are contaminated by him. So Jesus, we come before you right now. How often do we need you to come and stand in the gap of our lives and say, okay, Jesus loves you anyway. Are you ready to come home? How often do we try to heal, but we have so much baggage and we're afraid of our Father to see it when he's the only one who can take it? Who are the people in our lives that we've rejected? Who are the people that we didn't get close to because we stigmatized? Who are the drunkards on the side of the road that we passed by? Just leaving them there. God, may we not be like the Pharisees. May we learn the lesson. You love sinners. And there is more rejoicing in heaven when a sinner comes home than when 99 righteous do. So don't let us get caught up in that jealousy. But let us get caught up in and the radical love that you display, that if we were to experience the prodigal son moment, we would look right at that situation and say, I'm so glad my brother's home. Dad, can we throw a party even bigger than this? Would that be okay? We give our hearts to you, that we would treat the people around us kindly, rightly, and with love. May we do that uh, in every dinner we have, every event we hold, and even in this morning right now. For in the end, we all still have sins to work through. In Jesus' name, amen.